Well, comes to Christmas Day, following on Sunday, what do you preach on? You preach on the Christmas story. So I want you to turn, and maybe you can even say it from memory, Luke chapter 2, and 1 through 20, and then we're going to make a few comments. Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men with whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed. And the shepherds said to them, But Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart and pondered them. The shepherds returned glorifying, praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. God's word to God's people. Let us pray. Father, help the familiarity of the story not to rob us of its meaning. Uh, Help us to not allow the traditions of the day rob us of its uh, significance. May we understand the incarnation leads to the crucifixion, the resurrection, and to eternal life. Thank you for the story of Christmas. Help us to understand it even today. Amen. If I were to stand outside of Walmart on any given day and ask people as they came in to shop, fill in the blank, history is, and I would be willing to say after the end of the day, the majority of the answers would be history is boring, right? That's what most people would say. Now, some of you would not say that, but we're talking about the average American. And the reason is most of us have never had real good history teachers. And uh, we were in high school, and I don't remember who taught me history if I was taught any history. It was probably a coach who uh, probably had us read the chapter 
answer the questions at the end of the chapter, learn the dates, the facts, the significant events, and learn them for a test. And I indict myself. I, I graduated with, a, ma- with a, a major in education and social studies, which is history plus geography plus social, uh, cultural norms of the, of the area and traditions and economics and things like that. And I can remember teaching at uh, my one week, one uh, semester teaching at Rueville Junior High. And I realized I wasn't called to be a teacher. And I wasn't a good teacher. I was boring like every other teacher I'd ever had. But I had some great history teachers in college that understood not just the facts and the figures, but how everything fit together how history morphed into what it did. We have the great privilege of studying probably one of the greatest historians of all time, and that's in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a doctor. Luke is a friend of Paul. Luke is a friend of all the disciples, it seems to be, but above all things else, Luke is a historian. Historians that know historians... uh, An archaeologist by the name of William Ramsey said this about Luke. Luke is a historian of first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is possessed with a true historic sense of things. He seizes the important and the critical events and shows their true natures at greater length while he touches lightly or omits entirely much of which is valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed among the greatest historians of all time. And so this morning we want to look at Luke as he talks about the history of Christmas, as he talks about the humanity of Christ, and he talks about the the heavenly host giving the message, the history of Christmas. Luke is a little bit different than Matthew. A little bit different than John and a little bit different than Luke. Luke is different in so many different ways. Uh, But it doesn't mean that uh, those things conflict. When Luke adds a detail that Mark doesn't add, then he's filling out the picture. You know, that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but we also believe it's the Word of man. It doesn't sometimes become the Word of God and sometimes the Word of man, and sometimes it's God's Word and sometimes it's man's Word. They are interchangeable, that God used the unique personalities, educations, and and vocabulary of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write stories from their perspective. And so when you hear people say, well, Luke said this, but Matthew said this, always say that's compliments, it completes, it doesn't conflict. And I use this silly illustration. Let's say that, that uh, I go to a football game and I take my family with me. And when we come home, we begin to talk about the experiences of the day. And I say, did you see that quarterback throw that great big out route? Man, what an arm he had. And Sarah would say, did you see that tent? It had a candelabra in it and all the food on there. And Naomi would say, did you see the cheerleaders and how they'd throw them up and do all sorts of things? And Sarah Elizabeth would say, y'all went to the Grove, you know. She's a state graduate. But anyway, we would all have a different perspective. Not wrong. They're complimentary. 
And Luke gives us stories that other historians don't give stories. But Luke wants to write for us a reliable, accurate account to increase our certainty that these things really happened. I want you to turn back one chapter to the very first sentence of the gospel according to Luke, Luke 1, 1. 1 through 4 is one sentence. Let me read it to you. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write down in an orderly fashion or account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know with certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, I want to break out a couple of words there. He says, there have been many who have undertaken to write an account. We know by this time he's at least talking about Mark. But according to my professor, uh, Ralph Davis, he says probably he's talking about people who lived in one city and saw one or two miracles and heard one or two parables, they wrote that up. But then there's another group that in this city, they heard different parables and they saw different miracles and they wrote those up and they had other people over here that had heard things that wrote those things up. And so there were all of these accounts and these oral traditions and what what Luke is going to do, he says, I'm going to take all of these accounts and I'm going to write one reliable account of the gospel according to Jesus. He says, I wasn't an eyewitness. He, he didn't see the things that the disciples saw. He didn't see Jesus walk on the water or raise the dead. He didn't see Jesus give or hear Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. He, he wasn't an eyewitness. He didn't see the whole thing. I, I I cannot do this without thinking about David Aran. And David Aran on uh, one Good Friday was coming home to change so he could get to our Good Friday service. And when he's turning in, somebody hit him going about 80 or 90 miles an hour, knocked David down the road. And uh, like something on the Duke of Hazard, that car kind of turned over and disappeared in the gin. And David was like, what, what hit me? He couldn't find it. But he said they became Christians because they were calling for Jesus in there. But anyway, when uh, the insurance person came to check the story out, found out that the guy in the house right at the place where David had had the wreck was a witness. The insurance agent goes there, and I wish I remembered his name, but he, he said, I understand that on Friday, Good Friday, at such and such time, you were a witness to this accident. He said, I wasn't a witness. I saw the whole thing. Luke wasn't a witness. He didn't see the whole thing, but he heard the whole thing. And it says that he talked to eyewitnesses. He wrote these things down. It says he investigated like an investigative journalist. He researched to make sure this was true, and he, and, he, and he got second opinions, and he did all these things. And then he wrote it in an orderly fashion, not necessarily chronologically, but he wrote it in an orderly fashion around these themes that he was trying to, to portray and build this certainty of. But he was writing to this man called Theophilus, 
The word means philos is love and theos is God. It's a lover of God, and yet he calls him uh, excellent Theophilus. So I believe it was actually a person. But a lot of people believe it's anybody who actually loves God and wants to be more assured of their truth. And so what Luke is doing, he's writing this down so that we can have facts that support our faith. Not that our faith is built on that. Faith is a work of the Holy Spirit. But the mind is engaged as well as the heart, and there are historical facts that support the history. There's more history that Jesus lived than Julius Caesar lived. So what about it? What about it? It gives us certainty to believe that this stuff is true and happened. And it's a corny, uh, worn-out statement, but it's really still true that history is his story. History is the story of God's unfolding his plans in the world. Uh, One writer says this, Although Caesar would have never known it, Caesar had unleashed a chain of events that would turn the world upside down, for among the millions who had to register was a man named Joseph and his fiancée named Mary. This one little family was swept up seemingly in a tide of earthly power, but gave birth to a son that would be king of the world. To qualify as Savior, Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. That is so ironic. What is so ironic is God used Caesar to get him to Bethlehem. Proud Octavius became the unwitting servant of the divine plan. David Goodling writes, For Augustus, the taking of the census was one of the key ways he employed to gain control over the various parts of his empire. But here's the irony of the thing. In the process, as he thought of tightening his grip on the empire... He was also organizing things that Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of David, the son of God, destined for the throne of Israel and of the world, was to be born in the city of David. And what at first appeared to be a great show of Caesar's great power eventually proved the supremacy of the sovereignty of God. Even Caesar's decree was a part of the divine plan. God rules everything for his own glory. God rules everything for his own glory. Sometimes we don't understand it. Joseph didn't understand it when his brothers hated him, sold him, wanted to kill him. Joseph didn't understand why he was bought by Potiphar and why Potiphar's wife lied and had him thrown into prison. He didn't understand why the the baker and the candlestick maker and whoever forgot him. But when he got to the point where he was the prime minister of Egypt and his brothers came before him, he could say, because he believed in the sovereignty of God, moving all things to this point, that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Don't want to embarrass Gene, but I think about him when I think about the sovereignty of God that Gene and Janet lived above the Mason-Dixon line for a while up in Maryland. But they got here as quick as they could, 
And when they came here, they really thought, okay, we're moving down south to be closer to our family and to uh, mom and dad and things like that. And so they moved and uh, got here to Cleveland eventually. Thought their children needed a Christian education. It was in excellence, so they started going to PDS and they started going to First Pres. And Gene started playing tennis with the pastor and a man named Gene uh, Stancil and other people, Jimmy Heidel. And Gene Godwin, who thought he was a Christian, God moved him down here, got him in this environment so he could hear the gospel. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all of your lives and my lives my life. You might not understand it, but he is. History is indeed his story. But in this story of history, Luke gives us something about the humanity of Jesus. Luke says that Jesus was born, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And it's really all he basically says. He, he had gotten that. Well, who did he get it from? Who did he get that account from? You know, you, you don't have the idea. Now, you have to under, go back to what we said about the Bible. It's the Word of God, but at the same time, it's the Word of man. He, he got that information. It didn't just come to him. He had obviously talked to Mary or Joseph. Because he knew the story, behind the story. He knew about the, the angel of the Lord coming upon her and overshadowing her, and, and she would be with child. They knew about John the Baptist, and they knew about Zachariah's song. They knew about, they knew about Simeon's song. He, he knew about the baby's birth. He got it from Mary or Joseph or some firsthand thing. And it's amazing what he doesn't say. You know, when I go to the hospital now that I can go to the hospital when people have babies, I come out, and, you know, I come out, I used to come out with, it's a boy, is healthy, they're coming home thirsty. Man, was I wrong about, people want to know more than that. When were they, when were they born? How much did they weigh? How long were they? What's their Abgar score, you know? How's their Billy Rubin? Uh, they want to know everything. You don't get any of that in here you don't get mary and joseph complaining about there being no room in the inn they just it's a fact it's kind of like dragnet just the facts ma'am just the facts there was too many people and there wasn't room in the inn so they stayed out in the in the stable and they had a manger and the baby was in the manger it doesn't talk about her fear her pain she doesn't talk about she had to have, she didn't have a midwife or her mother to hold her hand. It doesn't talk about Joseph being clumsy. He was a carpenter. He wasn't a doctor. Doesn't get into the psychology or the emotions or an interpretation, the pain, the tears, the recovery. She had a baby, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Swaddling clothes was not only to keep them warm, a baby warm, but it was thought that day that if you didn't wrap a baby in swaddling clothes that their limbs would be deformed. You kept them straight where they wouldn't have rickets or something like that. She, she, she was a mother, and he was a baby, just a baby that happened to be God and man in the same person. What child is this who's laid to rest on Mother Mary's lap is sleeping? 
simple question. You know how long it took the church to answer that question? 451 years. And you think you're going to get it in a couple of Sunday school classes? Or a sermon? What they call the hypostatic union? How God the Father sent His Son to be flesh like us and he maintained his full humanity and his full deity without any mixture or composition of confusion or anything and people over the years tried, they tried hard to explain it you had the docetists the docetists, the word dokeo means to to seem the docetists thought that Jesus just appeared to have a body, he didn't really have a body he just had a shell of a body And they were part of the Gnosticism because God couldn't have any interaction with with material stuff. Material stuff was sin. And so the the docetists thought that Jesus appeared to have a body and at the baptism the Holy Spirit came in and then on the cross he gave up his spirit and it left. Not really a man at all. And then the Arians thought he wasn't really God. Arius taught that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, meaning that he was, there was a time when he was not. And he was the most glorious thing that God ever made, but he was a creation. He wasn't equal with God or coessential with God or wasn't to be worshipped like God. There was a, a vast difference. It's the same thing that Jehovah's Witness believe today. Arianism has, has persisted, but it's wrong. He isn't a created being. He is the eternal Son of God. They existed in eternal fellowship with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, enjoyed a fellowship from all eternity. And creation and us being created flows out of that great love of fellowship. God wanted a bigger circle of love. He wanted to bring his people into it. There was a Eutychianism. I can pronounce it, but I couldn't spell it if my life depended on it. But Eutychianism was that Jesus is really a mixture. And the image that they use is like pouring wine, a drop of wine into the ocean. That it would be absorbed in the ocean. And what they taught was that Jesus had a little bit of humanity, but it was so little that it was absorbed by his deity so that he was not truly man. And neither was he truly God because he had this part man in him. Eutychianism was ruled a heresy. And then there was the Nestorians. Nestorius taught that there were not just two natures in one person, there were two people in one person. I hate to use this illustration, but it's the only one I know of. If you've ever seen these children that are, that are co-joined and they have one body, but they have two heads, and they cannot separate them because... They're two individuals, but they share one heart. And you have the idea here, the Nestorians believed there were two persons in this one person. And you had, sometimes Jesus was acting like divine, and sometimes he was acting like humanity. He'd go back and forth. That was ruled heretical. And then there was Apollinarius, who believed that, Jesus was fully man, but had a divine mind. 
that he didn't have a human mind or a human will. Those are all the different attempts to, dis, to, to answer the question, what child is this? All of these people would be saying that they're trying to be honest to Scripture. But they weren't. So be kind when you're reading about them. It's an incomprehensible thing that we're trying to describe. Luther had a great quote, if I can find it here. Luther had a great quote about the humanity of Christ and his deity as well. Luther says, Jesus did not flutter about like a spirit, but he dwelt among men. He had eyes and ears and mouth and nose and chest and stomach and hands, just like you and I do. He took to the breast. His mother nursed him as every other child was nursed. Jesus was a man. He had to be a man. Not only for our salvation, but to sympathize with you and me in every point. He had to know what it's like to be tempted and weary and emotional and angry and frustrated so that you could never go to him and he says, what are you talking about? And when I say everything he sympathized with, you underscore that word everything. If you haven't read the book or if you haven't read it in a long time, read it. The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were captured, taken by Nazis because they were hiding Jews in their house. And they were put in this awful concentration camp. And in that camp, uh, Betsy eventually died basically of starvation, you know, uh, mistreatment. But every Friday, they had to go through what they called a a medical examination. It was an excuse for the male guards to have the ladies take off their clothes. And then they'd mock them and ridicule them. There'd be so much shame. And one day while they were standing in line, Corey looked up at Betsy and she saw her sister, just her, her shoulder blade sticking out. And she said, Betsy, they took his clothes too. They took Jesus' clothes. All the pictures you have of Jesus on the cross have that cloth because of a sense of reverence. But people were nailed to the cross without clothes. If you go back and read history, you find out that part of the problem was not just the pain, but the shame. There was no way to cover their nakedness. And Corey says to Betsy, he, they took his clothes. And Betsy's response was, I never thanked him. Jesus understands whatever you're going through. And you can approach him with confidence that he'll give you grace and mercy in the time of need. And then quickly we'll do the heavenly announcement. Luke tells this story about these shepherds on a nearby hillside and the angels appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them in the kingdom and they were sore afraid and you go how did he know about the shepherds on the hillside they would be easy to find 
Everywhere they went, they talked about these angels. They left praising God and saying, well, hey, we saw this angel. Then these angel hosts showed up, and they started singing and praising God, and they told us to go to Bethlehem and go to a manger and find this baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, and we did it. And surely Luke, with just a little bit of effort, could go to Bethlehem and find those shepherds. And those shepherds would tell you what the angels sang. The angels say, today I bring you good news that is for great joy to all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. The gospel's good news. Good news is what's happened. You know, we watch news today and it's speculation, pushing an agenda, all, all stations included. Pushing an agenda. News is... What happened? Not what you should do or what you should think. This is what happened. This is good news that God has sent you a Savior. He sent somebody to save you. He didn't give you ten steps to salvation, seven steps to a good marriage, five steps to, uh, to have good friends. or He didn't give you advice. He came to be your Savior. He is a Savior to rescue, redeem, and to release you from your sin, your fears, and from death itself. That's good news. And all we have to do is truly believe. The Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's the gospel. And it's for all people. All people without distinction, all people, any person, everybody, everywhere. The Bible is full of whosoevers and all that call upon the name. All who believe will be saved. It's for everybody. And it brings great joy. It brings great joy. We're going to sing Joy to the World. Let me tell you a little bit about it before you start flipping to it. It was written by Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts grew up in the church, and he didn't like the music of the day. He said it was boring. Uh, it was uh, not uplifting. It wasn't joyous. And what they were basically doing at that time were just putting the psalms to, to a chant or something or, or to a... And so what he did was he, he, he complained to his dad, you know, go to church, and I don't like the music. Kind of like y'all did when I picked the thou who was rich beyond all splendor. I'm going, y'all all said, who picked that him? I did, you know. So what, what uh, Isaac Watts did, he went and complained to his dad. He said, if you don't like the hymns, write some. He started writing hymns. And he wrote 600 hymns. He wrote Joy to the World. It's based on, it's based on Psalm 98 verse 4 and the next five verses and it wasn't meant or written to be a Christmas song it was meant to be a song that Christians are a joyful people but we speculate people speculate that the reason we have captured it for Christmas is because it expresses the Christmas feeling this good news brings us great joy which is to all people for unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ's Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the good news. Uh, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, living, dying, rising again, that we might have life. I pray if people have not believed, they would truly believe even today, even this Christmas day. And we pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen.